You're listening to Love Talk Live with the relationship expert, Jamie Bronstein, only on L.A. Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Love Talk Live. I'm your host, Jamie Bronstein, and today I have with me Dr. Grant Brenner and Dr. Mark Borg. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Thank you, Jamie. So we are going to be talking about their book called How to Make Your Crazy Work for You, which fullness to it. So you guys must have a sense of humor, and I'm so excited. Um, as I was kind of doing some research, it, um, there's a lot of great nuggets in this book. And so I know that this is going to be a very inspirational interview. So before we get into everything, I'm going to read to the audience a little bit about your book, and then I'm going to ask you like 12,000 million questions. Sounds great. (laughs) Okay. So overall, this book is about encouraging us to use our own vulnerability as a recovery tool. The authors show us how to reconnect safely with the parts of ourselves that we push out of our awareness, whether we repressed our feelings of isolation and anxiety due to inadequate caretaking or some other early trauma. The commitment to accept these feelings without being overwhelmed in rage crazy and putting it to work for us, offering relatable case studies and revealing exercises for self-reflection, making your crazy work for you helps us recover the lost parts of ourselves so that we can embrace new levels of self-acceptance and a deeper connection with others. So, gentlemen, if you could, whoever wants to go first, and there's also a third author if you want to talk about him, um, Mm -hmm. please tell me what was the inspiration for this book? How did it come together? How did you guys all know each other, et cetera? I would love if Mark, yeah, you're you're a consummate storyteller, so go for it. (laughs) All right. Well, I mean, it's funny because I I started a different project in about 2008 with two other people and that project was called human antidepressant and that project is completely wiped out because as grant and danny and i discovered in our project when we came back together to kind of heal the wounds of my wounds from that project um i was actually operating as a human antidepressant um in that team and so grant and danny and i came together with that idea and started thinking about this compulsive caretaking dynamic that all three of us were seeing in the world, and Grant and I in particular in our practices, and we started questioning whether or not this was something that people were doing to each other, you know, that we're doing, we're, I'm trying to fix you, I'm trying to rescue you, or I'm trying to cure you, or whether or not people were actually doing it with each other, meaning that it was less a pathology and more a dynamic. We started thinking about this thing that was no longer human antidepressant when we put it in relationship. We started thinking of it now as we came up with the term irrelationship which is a co-created psychological defense system against empathy, intimacy, vulnerability, and emotional investment. So, I mean, that, that, that's a nutshell. These guys, I knew Grant from uh, our institute. I know Dan the started thinking about this really kind of esoteric concept, your relationship, and then tr- started working it out among ourselves as we wrote the first book. Okay. And since, we just, since I just read the bio, basically, of the book, do you guys want to, I would love to hear, and I, the audience would love to hear about your story, just individually, like what you do. You guys are both, your psychologists, I'm guessing. Well, I, I'm, I'm a psychiatrist. Yeah, I'm a psychiatrist. <laughs> okay. um, yeah. I trained at Mount Sinai. Uh, 
and I had, I wanted to be a psychoanalyst when I was little, you know, like 11 or 12. Um, and I, I studied a lot of uh, psychology, uh, Jung, Freud, cognitive psychology, anthropology. Um, there's a book called Man Watching uh, by Desmond Morris, which is all about human behavior. I read all this stuff growing up in the 80s. And I had a real calling, though. I went into surgery for two years uh, for coming back. I studied at the William Allenson White Institute for psychoanalytic training, as well as organizational psychodynamics, you know, as as did Mark. Yeah. Um, and went into private practice and, and also a, quite a lot of not-for-profit work in disaster response, which I've been doing since 2000. Um, and now, um, you know, I work on these books with Mark. I have a private practice. And I started a co-founded and run a company called Neighborhood Psychiatry and Wellness, uh, in addition to a bunch of other projects that I'm working on. And I continue to do uh, crisis and disaster not-for-profit work with Vibrant Emotional Health as the co-chair of the crisis and emotional care team. Yeah. So we pulled all this stuff together, Grant and Danny and I. Danny's a nurse, actually. Danny's a nurse. He works over on Roosevelt Island. He works with, you know, really, really um, people who have had a lot of trauma as well and and times and other experience working with a lot of different people. I work with a lot of couples. I'm also married to another couple therapist. So my wife, yeah, my wife, oh my I know. And my wife is Japanese. So we wind up working with a lot of mixed race couples and we've, you know, and, and Grant and Danny and I write blogs on psychology today. We have two, one's a relationship, one's relationship sanity. So we're, we're trying to take all these different angles on how people relate to each other, but specifically where we started was this irrelationship thing, which was this weird conundrum that we were seeing where people were getting into relationships. And instead of actually creating intimacy, being empathetic to each other, being vulnerable, they were actually using the relationship to protect themselves against the scary parts of relationship. And we called that irrelationship through compulsive care taking. So, so- well, so so the ear, ear relationship is kind of being insincere. There's a sincere desire for them to get along, but they're acting out roles in a relationship which persuasively mean that I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. And so yeah. for couples, that becomes a really good sort of way to defend against how scared people are of really being close because they can say, well, right, I, I make dinner for you every night, right? You said you wanted me to take care of you. I'm taking care of you, right? So how can you be mad at me? And the other person, their job is kind of to not let that work. And it's unconscious. So that gives the two people this mission that they're in together to have a relationship that for all intents and purposes looks like a really healthy relationship. So right, right, you hear other people say, oh, I thought they were the happiest couple in the world. And then- the part that's hidden is the dysfunction that's and the right. isolation and that's the way right. the connection isn't working. Right. So that, what mm-hmm. we call self irrelationship. Mm-hmm. So the title of the book, making your crazy work for you from trauma and isolation to self acceptance and love is strongly based in trauma and dissociation theory. So yes. we see ourselves as having sort of, in, in our model, Harry Stack Sullivan was a psychiatrist who was one of the founders of the White Institute. He's um, at least locally famous for saying that everyone has good me, bad me, and not me. And yeah. so the good me, a lot of people are, are okay with their good me. Though some people who are self-critical, they have trouble acknowledging the good parts. A lot of people are okay with the bad me, right? They can say, I don't like that about myself, 
or they're very self-critical. I hate that about myself. But the parts of ourselves that are really cut off from awareness, that's like the not me. And a lot of making your crazy work for you is about starting with self-compassion and understanding of oneself in order to get on a path to where we can be integrated as people. And of course, everything else starts to fall into place if your relationship with yourself is very good. And it goes beyond self-care, like exercise and eating. Those are really important things. It's the basic operating system that you're using in how you approach yourself. Because after all, you are going to be uh, your own companion your whole life. So well, right. And, the, I think, and, I think, and I think, Grant, one of the bigger, biggest points that you just made is like what we define as crazy because it's that isolation. So here are the two people doing exactly what they think they're supposed to do. This person's caretaking, that person's operating as if the care is functional, if it's a, as if it works. But at the center of their relationship is this loneliness. And that's, that's what we started hearing all the way back in 2010 when we started researching and writing about this. So we started thinking like, oh my God, why are all these people who look like they're doing it right, caring for each other terminology, that means lonely, that means isolated in the context of a world or a relationship that looks intact. I mean, there, there's a, yeah, there's well, a and, and, and I'd say, and feeling confused and yeah. feeling conflict because it that's seems right. like everything should be working right and it's not. And so, right. you know, people say that's crazy making. Um, though I also think that crazy has a good connotation, which is like, I'm really crazy about you. I'm really crazy mm. about this new outfit or, you know, yeah. I, I just met someone. And so we, we would like people to be crazy about themselves in the good way, yeah. you know? Yeah. Well, well, I was, I was going to bring up, you know, crazy. If you call somebody crazy, that's a judgment and it's usually a pretty negative word. Yeah. Or if you think that somebody has a mental disorder, they're not crazy. They have a specific mental disorder. Right, so right. I'm glad that we're talking about crazy and and the, your definition of it. And I love that you're putting this positive spin on crazy also, because that is so true. You say, I'm crazy about you. That's right. And That's right. just the fact that I love that you guys are bringing up the reality that most couples seem so great. You know, when we live in this world of social media where everything looks perfect, everything looks great. But the truth is that most couples don't have the tools to what I'm hearing is what you guys are talking about is that there is a lack of communication. There's a lack of authenticity and vulnerability. And the example that you gave a few minutes ago, I was thinking, you know, if, if one or both partners could just say to the other one, this is what I need and I'm not getting it. Yeah. I feel like people don't express their needs in relationships because they have that fear that the other person's going to leave or they don't know what's going to happen. And so they, they, like you guys keep saying, like they're hiding and they're keeping, they're playing safe. Right. Well, I mean, there's a funny quote that, that I sometimes say with my patients. I say, you know, whatever you do, don't treat your loneliness with isolation. You know what I mean? And, and that's what winds up happening. I think you're exactly right, Jamie, because I think what happens is one of the ways to hide our loneliness from ourselves and from each other is by suppressing, repressing, dissociating, or just not articulating exactly the word you use, which is need. You know, need is right at the center of nonviolent communication, that theory. Basically, the theory goes that once we reveal our needs to other people, we also reveal our vulnerability. And when people see that, when people feel that need that we're expressing, they tend to drop their own guard and have a much easier time responding. So what Grant is saying, which I think is really 
interesting part of our story. Because for the first few years of this, I was like, there is no such thing as ir- self-ear relationship. How can there be a self-ear relationship when it's a co-created psychological? Then and I turned to Zach Sullivan and, and those people, and we started thinking, but wait a minute, what about the splits in the self? And what if the splits in the self experience create this isolation, me from me, or what Grant said, not me? And that's when we started thinking we could use ear relationship theory for us to treat ourselves, for us to hear that that voice, that loneliness because i think that the loneliness once it gets communicated that crazy we can hear our own needs and we can find ways to open up because one of the most crucial things about your relationship is it's a caretaking operation where all the care is going this way with such volume that it doesn't allow the care of others to get in yeah i just want to say one thing about that which is it's so interesting because we all have we all work. It sounds like we do similar work. I use different words. Mm-hmm. So I would say that the ego, the not, and that, right, right. that's a lot of the work that I do with my clients. And then it's finding the balance mm-hmm. and it's, then there's the whole, like the shadow work. And it sounds like mm-hmm. you guys are talking a little bit about shadow work. Mm-hmm. So the, the ultimate it's, goal. It sounds is, like you're coming from like a Jungian perspective. I personally don't do shadow work. I'm just all about the I ego, see. and then and then how do we um, how do we get past the barriers that are preventing yeah. us from accessing our authentic self, which are unresolved issues, which I know you guys right. wanted to talk about. So mm-hmm. perfect lead into uh, let's talk about. You guys have this fascinating thing where you say that neurobiological factors prime us to be attracted to those who trigger our unresolved issues from the past. So. Whoever wants to talk about that, go ahead. All right, Grant, you're on. Yeah, I think this is a very nuanced. One day our attachment develops in relation to caregivers shapes the way the brain is working. Um, And a lot of that has to do with brain networks. That's what we talk about nowadays, in addition to neurotransmitters like oxytocin and the idea is that experience leaves an imprint on the brain, like the brain is quite malleable. And so you're left with an after image of your formative relationships, and then you're uh, more likely to gravitate towards certain people who, you know, hit those marks. And there's plenty of research on this where people will date uh, and find people that have traits that are similar to their primary caregivers in certain ways. Uh, another biological factor is epigenetic effects which is the way stress changes the way um, genes are, are decoded. And this has been shown to be the case with neglect and trauma, that there are epigenetic effects. And that just the way images away, this is information. So, for example, um, whether you interpret someone's face as being uh, concerned or angry, right, it's very easy to mix that up. And, you know, biological factors shift the way we interpret things. So what you see in a lot of adult relationships is a traumatic bond at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And the traumatic bond creates this powerful, unconscious feeling of like fate or chemistry. Like you were meant to meet this person. It hits all of those like subcortical structures in the brain. And you have like an instant bond. And you're sure, right, that this person is the one. And it <laughs> makes it very easy, even beyond how we usually fall when feel when we fall in love to ignore the red flags right and then and then you you are bonded to the person almost like mated for life even though you've only known them for like a week but to actually get to know already <laughs> bonded 
and then you're realizing, hey, this isn't what I thought. This person isn't who I thought they were. And they're thinking probably the same thing about yeah. me. Except, of course, unconsciously, our book keeps coming back to all three of our books keep coming back to what Grant is saying at the unconscious level keeps sort of communicating. This is exactly the right person, right? You this are the, right. exactly the right person for me. This to is do familiar. That's right. So Grant and I call it a song and dance routine. Or Grant and Danny and I, we call this song and dance routine. And there are these caretaking operations that we use early in our life when the caretaking of our parents, for instance, or primary caregivers is not good enough. So what we do is that's a totally terrifying trauma for us. So we have to come up with routines that will get the caretaker to caretake us. And what we do when we're caretaking in that role is we create a dynamic that we then go out and repeat. And you have to really right. Sorry, unless Jamie. you go to, I was gonna say, this cycle happens unless you find one of us to do <laughs> this work to stop that cycle and to go inside and to mm. own. And to say, yes, this happened to me, but my past does not need to be a predictor of my presence or my future. There are things yeah. to be healed and it's more than possible. It happens every day. And That's one right. more thing about how, because I, I agree with you guys and I, I teach my clients the same thing. It's so fascinating mm -hmm. that we are drawn to people that will be challenging like in, rom in romantic relationships, I'm saying also. Yeah, yeah. 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 Because in every relationship, there we will get triggered and there are things to learn. It's a matter of do what is your willingness level to mm. actually do that work, to heal that unresolved issue. I love that. I love that you said that, Jamie, because I actually, when I, I'm pretty optimistic as I shrink with my patients and I, I constantly tell them, I said, that's the only ingredient. They're like, oh, I'm not ready. I'm like, okay, I'm not able. I'm like, that's okay. I'm not willing. Well, that we have to work on. It's the willingness. Yeah. That I, all, right? I think that's it. And I think that, that it's so wonderful. By the time somebody has walked in my door or these days popped up on my screen, obviously, um, you know, I'm like, that is willingness. You're here. We got it. Let's make use of that. Let's ride that. Like I'm from California too. I'm down, I'm from Newport beach. And like, you know, I like, I always think of surfing metaphors, like let us ride that willingness. And again, and, and throughout our books, Grant and I, and even throughout our blog entries, we're constantly you know, really encouraging people to grab hold of that willingness so that they can listen to the crazy as a signal for what they need. You know, like let that crazy be like a warning light that says, I need you using your terminology, Jamie. Like I need this. I need love. I need care. I need affection. And if I'm caring for you like this, it's not getting in. Well, how, how do people deal with the procrastination? Because, you know, you can know that you have stuff to work on, right? But we put it off and I was I was reviewing some research on how procrastination plays out in the brain and emotionally. I'll try not to go on too long about it. <laughs> but what they did this they did some imaging study and they looked at how people cope with their own emotions. And they found that there's a part of the right prefrontal cortex which is involved with tamping down emotions, reducing emotional expressiveness a little bit, allows people to get to work on harder tasks, mm. because if it feels too distressing, then what you're doing is what they call uh, emotion repair. So instead of getting to work on what you need to get to work on, like your therapy, you know, for yourself, you do something different. Like you write a, you write a book or you yeah, we call um, that dissertation itis, right? <laughs> yeah, you, know, you, you, you do something else in yourself and then you feel worse and worse. Cause you don't, you don't get going on it. 
And one of the really interesting things that came out of this research is that, of course, self-criticism is associated with greater procrastination, but people who are more self-compassionate are less likely to procrastinate because it helps to buffer the criticism. Yeah. And so we really have that as, you know, it's a core part of all three of our books and making your crazy work for you really starts with mindful self-compassion because people can be willing, but they also say, okay, I'm willing, but how do I do it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Working like right the the opening, right? The, you're already partway there by the by the willing. We popped up on the screen. The three of us are willing to jump into this like intricate conversation with each other and take all these different angles on it. See, and I and I love what you're saying, Grant. I think, again, again, we, we're encouraging people throughout all of our writing, not just not even just the books. I mean, we now have all these other ways of engaging people that we're constantly asking people to allow themselves. To, to be aware of what they need and and reset, you know, start this whole thing over to go back. I mean, this book actually starts to talk about, you know, kind of reparenting yourself. Oh, my God. Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> haven't read these books yet, but I'm going to. But <laughs> saying, oh, my God, absolutely. Because, yes, people, if you don't do this work to change those tribal you know, what you're born with, what the family you grew up in, what you were taught to really look inside and ask yourself, well, what works for me? Mm-hmm. You know, even though like this worked for, this is what I was taught or this what worked for my parents, but to heal those tribal teachings or whatever was ingrained. So that's such part of healing also. Yeah. Okay. We <laughs> more, more than a few minutes um, because I want to ask, I want to ask you guys, I know you guys talk about, you have a certain spin on love at first sight. Mm-hmm. So I want to hear about that. But I also, this is just a question that's coming to me. I would love to know from both of you guys, and it doesn't matter which book it is. And also please tell the audience the names of your other books, mm-hmm. um, what your favorite chapter is in all of your books. So you can, you guys can choose whichever one you want to go with first, the love at first sight or the favorite chapter in, in your book. Well, let me let me just I mean, our, so the first book ends with this incredible poem and the poem goes, your ignorance will be bigger than you and it will kill you with a white death with no pain and no noise. It will allow you to live in your empty room, not knowing what you could have been. That poem was in a bathroom in John's was the bathroom, the restroom of the restaurant where I went when I had my first date with my wife. And we quoted that in the last chapter of our first book. Uh, oh so I'm like looking for the, you know, but it's like that just to this day, to me, it feels like that quote, white death, that, that, that place where you go, the not me, where you don't even know that you're lost. Like that to me is the sort of entry point for us. So, you know, it's the conclusion, every one of these conclusions for all of our books, each one. Is like this incredible optimistic, like, here's how dark it gets. And here's a huge flashlight that we're going to shine. And plus, Grant, Danny, and I also have a website where we're like, people reach out to us and we respond. So we've like, you need some help? Like, we'll hook you up. You know, I like that. That That's my favorite part of our whole work is the kind of give and take between us and our readers and our audience. And just light, light all terms in this world that I work mm. with so much. Mm. So I love that you just brought up light also. Mm. It's, it's healing. That was my yeah. first word as a child was light. I looked really? up at the kitchen light and I said, I said, yite. Woo! It really was? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. That's special. Yeah, right. That's, right. A first sight, you... That's a foreshadow. That's very yeah, right. Absolutely. And love at first sight is a bit like light. Um, because when you meet someone, you feel like this light and you feel that connection. And although there can be these traumatic bonds, a lot of times there really is something there. And I think it's hard, you know, it's hard to explain. You can try to explain it scientifically. You can explain it spiritually. Um, but it doesn't mean that relationships won't take work, right? Because yeah. you have this incredible connection. And then, you know, something mm -hmm. usually happens after six or eight, there's studies, oxytocin start to shift. And then... Um, estrogen. But you, estrogen, yeah. yeah <laughs> you, for us girls out there. Well, I mean, actually, for women, testosterone also changes because right, it's I know we have it all. right. Um, but, but in any case, the love at first sight and like that's what people ask us. They kind of say, "Well, we're not getting along. Like, should we try to make it work or not?" Right? Mm -hmm. And it's like, what is the real basis of your relationship? Is there something there that you both care about that you're willing to do the work? And it, you know, it's interesting because divorce rates have actually gone down in the last two decades. They were 50%. Now they're down to about 40%. So I, I think it's interesting because maybe more people are like, okay, I'm psychologically minded. I've seen all the Netflix shows. I've seen all those sophisticated <laughs> TV shows. I know that love at first sight is awesome, but it doesn't mean that the relationship is what we wanted. So it has to make a space for the relationship. The yeah. relationship is like your offspring. You have to nurture yeah. it. Yeah, for the yeah, yeah. individual work and making your crazy work for you, it's the same thing. You have to like kind of partner with yourself in order yeah. to create a space for your own proper adult development. That's a great point, Grant. Like that the relationship even that we have with ourselves is like that other entity. We think there's a third entity yeah. in relationship. But um, and by the way, Jamie, just so you know, like that restaurant with that poem that night, I fell in love with my wife that night when she sat down. And Grant, I don't know if I ever told you this, but like I for for 16 years in my head, I tell this story about oh my wife walked in, she was married wearing this marigold turtleneck. It was January 11th. It was just last week, and I'm like oh I fell in love with her in this bright shiny marigold. Uh, <laughs> turtleneck sweater, and just last week we were we were in California a couple of weeks. She said to me, <laughs> "Where did like, you get that? Hey, who did I fall in love with?" Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> right, paging Dr. Freud. So, the well, so for, I, I, I think the waitress. Yeah, right. <laughs> Marigolds are very much in love. I feel like that's a line from a Pink Floyd song, maybe. <laughs> Yeah, it could um, be. It could be. Early One on. of these days, I'm going to dance with the evil beast. <laughs> well, um, but I, I like the idea of love at first sight because for self relationship, mm. I, I, I love the idea that someone is going to fall in love with themselves. Like, I think for me, yeah. that's one of the key parts of this third book is like, we want readers to really like fall head over heels to really be crazy in love with themselves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm... I'm writing a book about manifesting love, and that Ooh. is is a is a about the whole book. Eyes to manifesting love, you have to mm -hmm. unconditionally love yourself, so that mm. through the law of attraction, you can manifest the right match for you. You, if you're showing up as as like low vibrations, lots of anxiety, depression, not as your authentic self, you're going to attract literally 
the mirror of that. And that's why I went with my clients. They're all relationship clients, singles, couples, breakers, divorces. When I ask them, I, I call myself a detective. I ask them all these questions, you know. I'll ask them about their past relationships and I'll say, okay, well, what was going on in your life at that time? How were you feeling? How are you feeling inside? And then they're like, oh, that makes sense why I attracted that person in the past. And so then we do the work for them to love themselves unconditionally, no judgment. They've mm-hmm. forgiven themselves. They've forgiven everybody else in the past. They've healed themselves, healed all of their one who is primed to manifest love. Oh, that's very simpatico with, you know, where we go because we keep, you know, because we ask the reader, we, 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 we encourage the reader to, to really grab hold of that compassionate empathy for themselves. And that's exactly what you're saying. You show up on your date with compassionate empathy for yourself and you show up with incredible, I don't know, maybe you, maybe you're donning the spiritual, emotional, marigold sweater, (laughs) You know, because one of my friends is very much like into the the, the thinking in, in in terms of uh, spirituality and the, what might have been going on there. She was there when it was revealed. This was at a dinner a few weeks ago when it was revealed that like I saw a marigold sweater. And my wife was like, "What the in the world are you talking about?" And my friend was like, "No, she was wearing a marigold sweater like in in this kind of funny." other way you know like you're talking about the like emotional marigold this bright shiny beautiful self shows up at this date and i'm still in love with this person the person who married us i am the person who married us actually at Tompkins square park grant was there grant was at my wedding the person who married us said you can fall in love every day it's true oh my god well i'm Side note, and we have mm. we still do have a few more minutes. Um, oh. I am making a documentary about couples who are in love, so oh. perhaps <laughs> you might want to be interviewed when you're married, old lady. <laughs> I will absolutely be interviewed. I, I we we my wife and I were actually interviewed a couple of months ago. A guy named Todd Houston has a podcast called Love Leaders, okay. and he came to our house from like Oklahoma and brought in a whole film crew and filmed us about like this love leader idea. It was like beyond, it was, it was unbelievable. Wow. Amazing. Okay. I'll see you on Tuesday, next Tuesday. (laughs) Okay. Can I say, I I looked it up and it it is a Pink Floyd song. It's an old song called Seesaw that starts off with are very much in love. And I I just emailed you the lyrics. Oh, thank you. I love Pink Floyd and I love old Pink Floyd. So like, yeah, yeah, so I know fun. that. So that's where my mind went. <laughs> wow. It's wow, a bunch of synchronicity um, going on here, Jamie. <laughs> it's I love synchronicity. very much in love, but he doesn't mind picking up his sister. He makes his way into the seas or land all the way she smiles. That's too much. That is oh too much. <laughs> when you guys renew your vows, you guys can you can recite that or sing it. <laughs> That's right. That's Maybe right. have to sing it for you at, at the. the <laughs> Grant can serenade us. <laughs> you can play the guitar. Yeah. Okay. Um. So, how can people find your books? How can people find you to work with you, etc.? Plug away. You guys are both in New York, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Anyone? Okay. And we have a blog on psychology today called Relationship Sanity, and we have our all of our books are available on Amazon and at our publisher's website, Central Recovery Press. In order, it's irrelationship, how we use dysfunctional relationships to hide from intimacy, relationship sanity, creating and maintaining healthy relationships, which is for couples to use, and then coming out and available on Kindle now, uh, making your crazy work for you from trauma and isolation 
to self-acceptance and love. And we're on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. And, excuse me, I will be making some clips, a a montage of clips from this, and I'll be posting it on Instagram. So I will be tagging you and and Facebook and and everywhere. Also, we'll have to exchange all of our our socials. You know, like the kids these days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Did that, what about like individually, if people want to work with you individually? Just look us up. I think you just, for me at least, just Google Mark B. Borg Jr. and like, I'll give you a call. <laughs> My website is, is grantHBrennerMD.com. And I have a solo blog on psychology today called Experimentations with a capital M. Yeah. Okay. Wonderful. And yeah. as always, everybody can find me at therelationshipexpert.com. Very easy. <laughs> Can't forget that one. So awesome. thank you guys so thank much. You. This oh, was such a pleasure. Wow. Great one of my you. favorite shows, honestly. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, I, cool. I love how um, it was very, it's fresh, fresh information, you know, and I love your terminologies. I love your wisdom. Um, you guys have so much experience. And so I know that a lot of people are going to be inspired by this show. So thank you. Thank you. Great to see you. I hope that everybody joins us every week. Love Talk Live on LA Talk Radio at 2 o'clock Pacific. Have a great afternoon, night, wherever you are, everyone. Bye. Bye. You're listening to Love Talk Live with the relationship expert, Jamie Bronstein, only on LA Talk Radio.